3: Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice, Buck Sexton.
4: Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you as always. Honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out. So there's a bunch of things to get into today, my friends, including the Republicans actually putting forward. Republicans in the Senate have a new version of their health care bill. Ooh, we'll talk about that. Now, it has not gone through in the Senate yet. It might not go through, but at least there's something. At least, so you're telling me there's a chance, Senate Republicans. Uh, it might go through. And that's, so that's on the policy side of things. We'll, we'll talk a bit about the uh, health care situation. You have Trump uh, over in France with Macron ma oui bien sûr Emmanuel Macron he will save the french people from uh, losing all of their uh, their social programs their fantastic uh, flaky croissants magnifique. magnifique uh, i don't know why every french politician in my mind uh, wears a beret and uh, has a galois with like a long holder on it and is playing an accordion but nonetheless uh trump is in france we'll talk a bit about that uh, you've got more on the the soon to be uh, FBI director. Uh, Maybe we'll talk about that. I, I think that's just an interesting. Uh, will be a big story because that FBI that FBI director. I'll I'll make a prediction. I'll go out on a limb right now. It's not much of a limb, but I'll uh, stick my neck out and say this FBI director is going to come into the middle of a political. Maelstrom, A cyclone of politicization awaits this FBI director. Just you wait and see. Um, but, you know, he looks like an interesting, you know, so far what I've seen looks like an interesting fellow. Uh, Rand Paul, not too happy yet with the health care bill. We'll get into that. Plus, also, by the way, in the third hour today on the show, I'm going to talk to you about one of the most important uh, pieces I've read in months on immigration, assimilation, and on w- what we would have to call uh, social terrorism. That's what it's called in the piece. Also, I would call it sexual terrorism, involving specifically from within the Muslim community Afghan refugees in Austria. It's an article in the National Journal. From a, a Rand scholar, uh, someone with a doctorate who has extensive experience, you got to stay with me. We're going to spend some real time on that in the third hour. The stories that uh, she tells, which are both from her personal experience in Austria as well as what's in the media over there right now, how this is not getting more attention. Well, we know the reasons for it, but it's just it's just appalling that this is being covered up. What's going on over there? People are afraid. People on the streets of Vienna, people in Austria and in other countries across Europe, are afraid because of the crime wave, specifically the sexual, the the uh, sexual assaults that are happening in broad daylight from gangs of young men. Uh, so that is that's in the third hour because uh, I really want to spend some time on that issue. Uh, so definitely stay tuned for our discussion about that and this piece in the National Journal. Um, but for, okay, Russia. There's more today, right? There's more. We knew there would be. There's no way we're going to get around having to talk about a little bit of Russia. I promise you, will also health care, and there are other items. And like I said, third hour, we're talking about the refugee issue and civilizational jihad, and you're definitely going to want to stay around for that. It's not going to be a radio show like other shows, just bop, 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 Republicans and Democrats, bop, bop, bop. We've got other things to discuss, too. But having said that, (laughs) having said that, uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about the partisan squabble. The Well, it's really an it's actually a political all-out war in D.C. It's not right to call it a squabble. It's This is no holds barred. This is rough stuff. And if the Democrats get their way, there'll be members of the Trump administration in prison. There will be impeachment proceedings, perhaps even removal proceedings. I think Donald Trump would resign before that happened. But who knows? Maybe not. He's the Donald. Now, I don't expect that to be the case, but that is what... They are pushing for—that's the plan, everyone. That's the strategy. That's the stratagem. That's where they are hoping to take this country. Uh, they certainly are not interested in uh, working with Republicans to put forward policies that will benefit the American people, the American economy. Uh, they're certainly not interested in new approaches to foreign policy. American foreign policy has been remarkably bipartisan in its failures in recent decades, and we should be honest about that. Uh Afghanistan, so far, is not a win. Will it be a failure? We'll have to see. But we are not winning in Afghanistan. We don't even know what the end state in Afghanistan is supposed to look like. Uh, Iraq is, for now, holding together, yes, they've kicked ISIS out of Mosul, but it is fragile at best. And think about all the lives lost and all the treasure spent in that country. And then you look at Syria, Libya, I mean, we, we have... We do need new thinking on foreign policy, but with Democrats, it's just, you know, Trump is, a, Trump is a Russian traitor. That's all they want to say. That's what we're supposed to spend all of our time defending against. And now I know there's—I'm always of two minds about this. There's a part of me that wants to say, look, we move on to other topics. There's policy. But you also can't allow this stuff to just stay out there in the ether, blasting at us from, from TV screens, you know, CNN shouting at you while you're in the airport— Trump's a traitor, Trump did treason, all this other stuff. Never mind MSNBC, which I, I can't even. I mean, when, when CNN has gone full Trump's a traitor, I don't even know what MSNBC is saying. How much more, how much more intense and crazy can you get? Uh, maybe I should tune into Matt out one night to see. But it's, it's remarkable what's occurring right now in the media across the country. And the Russia story is at the heart of it all. I spent a lot of today thinking about this and... Uh, I, I've talked to people. One of the more one of the more fun parts of going on TV. I'll actually be on the uh, Kennedy Show on Fox Business Tonight talking about some of the things we're discussing here uh, during the. Uh, well, you have to listen to the show. It's during the eight PM hour for those of you, but you should listen to the show and then just DVR it. So, uh, but we talked about this, and I speak to people backstage in in the green room, and I, I keep asking someone to to tell me why am I supposed to think that this meeting. It's it's dumb in the sense that it's a political liability, and they should have seen that coming, probably, almost certainly. Uh, but why am I supposed to believe that this is so terrible? I think that uh, Donald Trump Jr. said some interesting stuff about this.
2: Most people would have taken that meeting. It's called opposition research or even research into your opponent. I've had many people—I have only been in politics for two years— but I've had many people call up, oh, gee, we have information on this factor or this person or, frankly, Hillary. Uh, that's very standard in politics. Politics is not the nicest business in the world, but it's very standard where they have information and you take the information.
4: Now, by the way, of course, you don't need me to tell you that was Donald Trump senior. Pardon me. We're, I'm, I'm now junior and senior. I'm getting it you know, mixed up and mixed up in my head as we go back and forth over these I think that's a very fair point. Now, the the assumption here, let, let's understand what the—because the, the New York Times had this big timeline today, and they're saying that the the meeting with Veselnits, Veselnitskaya—I like to say it like that—the meeting with the Russian, the Russian lawyer, we can say that, uh, occurred, and then Trump made some promise about how there's more damaging information about Hillary, and they laid out this whole extensive timeline to create a— uh, circumstantial case that there's more to the collusion than what we've already seen, because what we've seen is not enough. What we've seen is not going to be sufficient for the media's purposes. They're going to run with it, but they need additional fodder. They need additional stories here. So um, they created this entire uh, breakdown, this whole this whole timeline that is as damaging for the president as they possibly can make it. And it the, you looking at this looking at the different possibilities here. Yeah. If it, remember yesterday, I said if then if there's a broader story of collusion, if there was a much more wide ranging effort to work with the Russians to beat Hillary in the election that involved dirty tricks, then the meeting, yeah, is the beginning of something or, or is in, indicative indicates something very uh, unseemly. But I would offer to you, under the same circumstances, and putting aside the lack of political wisdom and foresight to take this meeting, and I do want to talk about how Veselnitskaya was able to get into the country because of a special waiver given to her by the Obama DHS, and she was on the special visa, and she has ties to Fusion GPS. We're we're going to get into all of that later. Fusion GPS is the group that paid for the dossier on Trump with all that— uh, nonsense but defamatory information. And there's still a lot of pieces. There's a lot of information that we don't have yet. So we, we can't come to completely concrete conclusions about all different aspects of this media assault on Trump. But I would just offer to you that under the circumstances that we know of right now, Donald Trump, take, Donald Trump Jr. Sorry, takes that meeting and this woman, uh, Veselnitskaya, sits down and says, you know how Bill Clinton got paid $800,000 for a speech? Oh, yeah, this is a real thing, by the way. So this is fact. You know how Bill Clinton got paid $800,000 for a speech uh, from a group that was tied to a Russian bank that's directly tied to the Kremlin? Because business and government in Russia are symbiotic organisms, right? So that's we need to understand that. It's somewhat true in this country. It's very true in Russia, which is a— a reforming Mafia state maybe you'd call it or a, uh, a an evolving Mafia state probably a better way to put it um but you mean know, a bill got paid 800 grand I mean it was a lot of money I rolled over there and I was just like hey everybody let's talk about you know Russia ladies here are lovely let's party eight hundred thousand dollars for him. So we know that happened. Let's say he sits down and people have been pointing to the, you know, the uranium deal. And I know everyone says they sold uranium. Well, the, my understanding is the uranium is there are limitations on, you know, that it, it can't just go anywhere. But um, the point here being that if she, if he sat down, if Donald Trump Jr. sat down uh, and he spoke to Veselnitskaya and she said, you know, you know about the $800,000 to Bill Clinton, what you don't know is that through with a pass-through company, we also funneled, you know, the, the Russian government or Russian government entity funneled $10 million to uh, a, a shell corporation that is directly tied to Hillary Clinton. It's just a giant payoff. Now, this is—keep in mind. i, I am—this is a not even a theory. I'm just playing out a scenario. I am mm-hmm. concocting this, to be very clear. This is not—I'm not saying this happened, but I want to put this out there because we are always— acting under the assumption that he either want that he wanted to just get dirty information from the hacking or something else. But what if there was very real information in that meeting? And it's information like there was a payoff from the Russian government to Hillary Clinton to Hillary Clinton. You should know about it. And then the Trump campaign had that information. They verified it through some means or or other. And then that was it. Right. They went public with it and it was all over for Hillary and maybe criminal charges followed all the rest of it. Then the meeting doesn't look shady, does it? I mean, it it is conceivable that he could have sat down. Now, in retrospect, it was unwise. I understand that. But we are assuming that he sat down, it was unwise, and, oh, there was also something really wrong about this, because he was trying uh, to—the media is assuming that he he was trying to do something underhanded and maybe even illegal here. If the Russian government had information that Hillary Clinton had committed a a major crime— and they decided to share that with Donald Trump Jr. Is that that's illegitimate? Why is that? I mean, and yet people can say, well, then he should take it to the FBI. Okay, but maybe he was going to find that out. He didn't know. I just think that it's very easy to look at this now and insert it into the narrative. The prefabricated narrative the media already has, and that's what they want you to do, which is, given everything that's been said about Russia up to this point, and General Flynn, and the ambassador, and and, uh, Manafort, all this other stuff, now they they have this meeting, which they've known about for a long time, by the way, in the press. Now they have this meeting, and it's supposed to create a perception that there's a much larger conspiracy at work between Trump senior officials, his son, the Russians, and all the rest of it. But— You could also step back and just say, look, he took a meeting, shouldn't have taken the meeting, but this meeting could have been a game changer. And clearly he thought, he said, you know, I love it if it's true. He thought it could have been a game changer. And there was the possibility of getting information in the meeting that would have been completely relevant and necessary for the public to know. So the whole notion of, oh, it's a collusion with the Russian government, well, it all depends on what they're being told. If it's a if it's a uh, a version of actual crimes Hillary committed, anyway, you see what I'm saying? We're, we're theorizing here on top of theorizing because there's a lot that we don't know. But they want you to assume that this was. They want you to obviously take this in the worst light possible, and then assume that there's much more. When you could always just step back and say, "Hold on a second, this nothing came of it. It's no big deal." And if you were in Donald Trump Jr.'s shoes, would you have sat down and taken the meeting? Maybe. I mean, maybe not, but it's certainly possible. So anyway, there's more of this. People are yelling treason and Nancy Pelosi. And I, I, I got a ton more on all this stuff. Uh, but what do you think about this? 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, was the meeting as bad an idea as everyone's saying it is right now? Under the circumstances at the time, was it really that clear this was such a crazy thing to do? Well, I want to know your thoughts. We'll be right back. Team Buck, you've been asking, and I finally got them for you. We've got Team Buck gear in effect, my friends. Go to bucksexton.com slash store. That's bucksexton.com slash store. We have awesome Freedom Hut t-shirts. We've got Team Buck hats. We've got all kinds of Team Buck gear. Uh, Commie Bear t-shirts. For those of you are not familiar with Commie Bear yet, you will be, but some of you certainly know. Uh, so Team Buck I'm sorry, Buck Sexton, yes, Team Buck, that's you. Go to bucksexton.com slash store, S-T-O-R, bucksexton.com slash store. The T-shirts are awesome, high quality, fashionable year-round, different colors, T-shirts specifically for the ladies, T-shirts that are, uh, you know, for everybody. Um, You'll love them. Check them out. Steve in Boston, W-K-O-X. What's going on, Steve?
5: Hi, Buck. Uh, You just asked before the break if your listeners thought it was a good idea or not for Junior to take this meeting. So don't forget, he took it also with uh, Trump's other son and I think the campaign advisor. And, you know, in in my opinion, for him, it was a a great idea to take the meeting if he thought he wasn't going to get caught. It was obvious to me that he didn't think he was going to get caught for all of the denials. But seeing as it is illegal to take information from a foreign government relative to aiding a campaign, if he knew that he was going to get caught, it was a terrible idea.
4: Well, wait, I, I, but why is it—I mean, Stephen, I have to say that even the people that think that it may be illegal are very hesitant to say that it is illegal because it would be the first time that that's a, a crime that would ever have been prosecuted. And to criminalize uh, the passage of information to a private citizen from a foreign government seems to be— I don't know what statute that would fall under.
5: You're calling it a private citizen, but we obviously have the passage of information to a campaign—
4: Okay, but I mean, yeah, but he's not I mean, he's not a government official. Right. This isn't This isn't an espionage uh, espionage issue. So so what's the uh, I mean, aiding a campaign is, you know, if you get information from a a foreign government now, that's a crime. I just I don't see how how you apply that. Where does that That stop and start?
1: That is.
5: is, Yeah. So once a foreign government starts. Well, you're saying it
4: is. It's never it's never been prosecuted before. And I mean, Alan Dershowitz, who's a professor at Harvard Law School, is like that's that's a laughable interpretation of of statute. So I don't know if you're a lawyer, but I mean, I haven't seen anybody. I haven't seen anyone definitively try to claim uh, that it's a violation of law. What they're saying is that it's any tangible thing or 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 thing of value. But if information like that is a thing of value, uh, that becomes a pretty big First Amendment issue right away.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it it certainly does. I think, I think the 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 main, the main other point is that it, is that what you were talking about with regards to the sort of the schedule of events that was kind of being concocted by liberal media. I, I I just think that the word in the email that this was part of the support provided by the Russian government. Is indicative that this is part and parcel of a larger whole.
4: Well, that's certainly if what the media wants you to believe. But it's been a long time, you know, and this is the biggest it. evidence of it that we've seen. So, Stephen, I will so say this: we have, have to, we have to, to wait time and time see. Time. I'm not trying to cut you off, but we have, a, we do have a hard break here. Uh, we'll be back right after team. Stay with me.
3: He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops.
4: All right, team, there's a lot of back and forth over this uh, GPS, Fusion GPS organization. I want to talk to somebody who understands how this political game is played and who some of these players involved in it right now are. Uh, We're joined now by Ned Ryan. He's founder and CEO of American Majority Action and a former presidential writer for President George W. Bush. Ned, great to have you.
6: Hey, Buck! Great to be with you. Yeah, fascinating topic. This uh, this Fusion GPS.
4: So, tell tell me about this group and and what we should all know about them.
6: So, it's it's a Democrat opposition research firm. I, I would call it a disinformation firm. Um, and the reason that that the listener should really understand is because what Fusion GPS did is that they helped fund what is now known as the Steele dossier. And and they funded it. They got a British national, Christopher Steele, former MI six agent, to basically create this dossier that really is the genesis for the, the Trump Russia collusion, you know, fairy tale. And they, they funded Steele to put a, put together this thirty-five page memo that essentially had a lot of unsubstantiated I mean, really, Buck, it came down to essentially a compilation of Google search terms. Uh, Looking at newspaper clips, left-wing conspiracy sites, and then also a lot of anonymous sources to insinuate that our current president, commander-in-chief was, in fact, a secret Russian traitor. And so what what Fusion GPS then did is – and this is the great mystery, Buck – somehow that dossier got into the hands of John Brennan, got into the hands of James Clapper, got into the hands of a lot of senior Obama administration officials – who then spread, it got spread around the Obama administration, again, unsubstantiated, mostly debunked now, insinuating that Trump and Russia were colluding. And so what, what's been going on, and I've been one of the guys trying to highlight who Fusion GPS is, we want to bring get them in front of the Senate and House committees, and guess what's going to happen next week? Glenn Simpson, one of the co-founders of Fusion GPS, has been subpoenaed by Chuck Grassley. He's going to appear Wednesday in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Under oath, and Grassley and others are going to ask them questions of, you know what, who funded this? Why did they fund it? How on earth did it make it into the hands of John Brennan and James Clapper? I mean, Buck, one of the questions I have is James Clapper and John Brennan took this dossier and they started briefing people on it. What on earth would cause them, the head of DNI and the head of the CIA, to start briefing people on unsubstantiated rumors. It's it's just kind of a bizarre thing. But again, Fusion GPS, you're going to hear a lot more about them next week.
4: What what can you tell us about uh, where where what you think is true and what's not about Natalia Veselnitskaya, this lawyer from the Trump Jr. meeting? And, and I'm seeing some people saying that there may be a Fusion GPS connection to her, too?
6: 100%. They're linked. Uh, they have been working together. On it, you know. Pardon me if I, I butcher this. The Magensky Act, uh, if I'm if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, it's, it's something. Along I think the it's
4: Magnitsky, the- <laughs> yeah.
6: Magnitsky, thank you. Um, they are working together on that to basically get it repealed. It's something that Obama put in place in response to this gentleman uh, essentially being tortured to death, and Putin responded by saying we're going to cease Russian adoptions. So, no, these two, the Russian lawyer that met with Donald Trump Jr. and Fusion GPS have actually been working on projects. In fact, we're working on this project together as Fusion GPS was actually funding Christopher Steele to come up with this unsubstantiated dossier. So there is absolutely a 100 percent link between this Russian lawyer and Fusion GPS.
4: What do you think is the truth behind this meeting so far in terms of how it was set up? And why would this woman— And I'm asking for analysis. I know it's not 100 percent clear yet, but why would this woman try to get this meeting?
6: Well, the, the, the one thing that I think is a good question to ask in regards to this, how on earth did this woman who couldn't get a visa and who some people are alleging is an agent of the Kremlin somehow magically get into the country and get approved for that by Obama's DOJ, specifically Loretta Lynch? How on earth did she get approved if she was a supposed agent of the Kremlin? So, the thing that's interesting in all this, Buck, is there are a lot of questions that are starting to be asked of, like, literally, how did this woman even get in the country if she couldn't get a visa, and then all of a sudden gets a special waiver essentially from Loretta, Loretta Lynch? And so, you know, you look at some of these things again. She came in and said she wanted to talk about some of the, uh, you know, said she had this this information on Hillary Clinton when, in fact, all she wanted to do was talk about this act uh, that we referred to earlier. So. It's kind of this bizarre sequence of events of how did she even get there? You know, again, it was an ill-advised meeting. And I think most of us that have been involved in politics for a while should have – you know, Donald Trump Jr. should have realized I should never have taken this meeting. At the end of the day, there are a lot of bizarre questions that need to be answered because we don't even know why this woman even got into our country.
4: We're speaking to Ned Ryan. He's founder and CEO of American Majority Action. Uh, What do you think we're going to find out when – uh, a member of uh, Fusion GPS testifies before the Senate Judiciary Panel. What do you think may come out, or is likely to come out?
6: Uh, you know, I, I am betting right now, Buck. I would say it's fifty-fifty that Glenn Simpson, when he goes under oath in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, I think he might actually plead, plead the, the fifth.
4: Uh, yeah, fifth. I, thought, I thought you are going to. Sorry, I thought you were going to say no, that. Go
6: ahead. No, I do. I think there's a good, it's you fifty-fifty know, that he'll plead the fifth because, quite frankly. This is this is something that Democrats have now used. I mean, you have Adam Schiff who cited this. He's the ranking uh, member on how Democrat member on House Intelligence. Mark Warner, who's the ranking Democrat member on uh, Senate Intelligence. Maxine Waters. Others have used this dossier to, again, kind of promote this narrative of Trump-Russia collusion. So there are a lot of questions. I'd love to see him get asked a ton of questions. I just have this strong suspicion that he's going to sit there in front of Grassley and the others and
7: just plead the fifth.
4: You think this is a big problem, this meeting? Uh, Ned, I mean, you're a guy who understands what the implications are um, politically. You think this is going to—is this going to be them, or is this going to go away?
6: Uh, you know, sadly, Buck, I think we're going to be talking about this for a while. This kind of gave it some new juice. Did he do anything criminal? Absolutely not. Did he do anything that comes remotely, even close to collusion? Absolutely not. Was it ill-advised? Yes. Um, you know, it's the political fallout because it gave a little bit more fuel to the Democrats and the mainstream media saying, oh, maybe there is something to Russian collusion, et cetera. But – you know, sadly, I think we're going to continue to hear about it. Do I think there's going to be criminal fallout or legal fallout for Donald Trump Jr.? No. At the end of the day, he did nothing criminal, and he did he didn't do anything anywhere close to collusion.
4: Is the midterm going to be an impeach an impeachment referendum essentially? I mean,
6: hundred percent. I am convinced that the 2018 midterms, obviously, especially with the House, because I I think the Senate map favors Republicans, and I think they could actually maybe even pick up seats. But I do think that the, the House elections in 2018 have everything to do with impeachment. And, and Buck, you and I both know impeachment's a political tool. You, I mean, they could impeach Donald Trump for jaywalking. Um, so, you know, my concern would be if Democrats regain the majority in 2018 that, uh, you know, for very, very uh, loose reasons would attempt to impeach Donald Trump.
4: Ned Ryan is the founder and CEO of American Majority Action. You can follow him at Ned Ryan on Twitter. Ned, great to have you, man. Come back soon.
6: appreciate it buck thank
4: you all right we're gonna let ned ned's got to run over to fox now i understand what that's like team we are going to hit a break uh we'll be back with much more stay with me
3: he's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth
4: the buck never stops senate's got a health care bill out there everybody Woo! Senate healthcare. Let's talk about it. Exciting stuff. I know you're excited right now. You can probably barely sit in your chair or your car or wherever you are listening. I know some of you listen while you're working out. I appreciate that. Get fired up by freedom. The freedom hut is is inspiring, my friends. Inspires me to work out. Um, because I feel like otherwise I'm sitting here for three hours at a time and not moving. So I have to work out in my off hours, which I should do more of, by the way. Uh, so. The health care vote that will happen, uh, well, we're not sure exactly when it's going to happen, but we know what the plan is right now. Senate Republicans have put forward their newest proposal to repeal and replace Obamacare. Now, it's not a full, to just, so we're all on the same page, so we all understand exactly what we're talking about here. This is not a full repeal, and that does not make, for example, our uh, buddy Senator Rand Paul, particularly happy about this. Here's what he had to say.
2: If this bill fails, which I think there's still a chance that it will fail, that our backup plan should be divide the bills in two. Let's have a clean repeal, what we promised the American people, clean repeal of Obamacare. And if the big government Republicans want to spend a lot of money, they can work with Democrats on a separate bill that spends money. But right. you can't have conservatives like myself voting for something but that real is quick, big government. government.
4: Yeah. It's an interesting point, isn't it? This is like we start with... Uh, start the budgeting process at zero instead of having all of this built in spending. Uh, th- this is just, uh, in de- this is part of the much larger problem we have where politicians look for ways to take credit for the good stuff that comes from government spending, the free stuff or the subsidized stuff, and to always hide their role in driving the costs of this, which of course also means eventually, if not now, additional taxation and all kinds of. Uh, slow down and drag on the economy, uh, which is even hard, really, to to quantify. Uh, so Rand Paul saying, look, why don't we just repeal and then have a whole separate thing? But let's just repeal. Obamacare goes away, and they're, they're not going to do that. This is because, and a lot of Republicans don't want to talk about this, but this is because they like some parts of Obamacare, as I have been saying to you. There are senators who are like, you know, that whole Medicaid expansion thing, Kind of liking that for my prospects for reelection, kind of thinking that uh, health care welfare, while it is not conservative and while we are 20 trillion dollars in debt and Medicaid and Medicare are the two programs that are uh, the most likely to spiral us even further into into unsustainable debt that who knows where that will all lead. I mean, we don't talk about it much these days, but I, I remember I'm old enough to remember like 2012 when. 20 trillion in debt was a rallying cry for Republicans and scared people. Now I mean why not just make it a cool 30 you know why, why not just go to 50 trillion? I guess it doesn't matter. I mean it does matter, but we're being led to believe we're we're being lulled into this blase attitude about destroying the economic futures of generations to come that that's what's happening now and why it doesn't have any political resonance is because everyone living right now who's getting stuff, puts it on the credit card that other generations will have to pay. That's really easy, isn't it? That's an easy decision for most politicians. So you're seeing the exposed uh, underbelly here of some moderate Republicans, and it's it's unsightly. Uh, this is not something that we can be excited or enthusiastic about uh, at all, I think, uh, at least the reasons why some Republicans are willing to keep in place these parts of Obamacare. But you do have, for example, the— uh, the John Cornyns of the world, who are saying, look, it's this or you're on your own, buddy. If Senator Paul can show me uh, 49 other votes for his bill, then I'd be all for it.
2: Um, But unfortunately, the practicality is we have to pass a bill. And that if you vote no
4: on this bill, it essentially is a vote for Obamacare, because that's what we're going to be left with. Ooh, a vote for Obamacare. Look at this. Look at how this happens now. So, uh, so Republicans who want to repeal—think th- about this, everybody. Republicans who want a full repeal in the Senate of Obamacare are voting for Obamacare. What a slap in the face that is! Uh, those who want to keep their word to their voting constituencies, because all the Republicans are like, oh yeah, Obamacare—it's got to it's go. I mean, we got to get rid of it. It's terrible. Look what it's doing to people. It's awful. I hate it. And now they're like, well, you know, I don't know, Medicaid's kinda cool. I mean, it's pretty good for people, I think. I oh. don't They they've changed it all around. Now all of a sudden here we are. I mean, you know, it's I, I, gotta, I gotta get votes. I mean, you know, Medicaid's gonna get votes and so you know, I mean Obamacare's not, it's, it's not that bad. This is where we are. This is how it's all come together now. Uh you've got John Cornyn and, and others who are just gonna say that some action here is better than no action and if you're pushing for no action because the replacement bill is not good enough. You are an Obamacare supporter now. It's just, uh, it, it is just unfair. You see, this is a similar circumstance to what some people in the Republican Party felt like they were pushed to in the election, which is that, you know, a vote or, or not voting for Trump, for example, is a vote for Hillary. But that was a binary choice. So I understand that. Right. I, you know, your choices in the election were Trump or Hillary or I guess Evan McMullen in a few states. But you know, I forget how many uh, or Bernie, not Bernie Sanders, um, Jill Stein in a few states. I mean, I think she got like she got like like hundreds of votes in a few states. Uh, but anyway, those were the choices. The choices for the Senate are not do something or nothing. The choices of the Senate are do this or do something else. Uh, and it's a false choice for some senators to present it as though there's no other, there's no alternative here. Sure, an alternative will be hard, but uh, this is when we get to see, do the, do the Republicans believe what they say they believe? And I think the answer to that, unfortunately, in many cases is no. They play us for fools. They think that we don't pay attention. We, the—well, not just the American people, we, the Republican Party, we, the conservatives who live in this country, are— somewhat uh, distracted or or, or easily uh, misled on this issue and are able to be fooled. And that's why you have people like Corden saying you've got to go along with this or else. Uh, by the way, I don't believe that they're going to do this and then they're going to do all this other stuff that's going to make it really awesome. I think if they do this, they're going to have to hunker down and see how it shakes out for the midterms. And who knows where this is all going to... So they can't count on a second... A second swing at the pinata, so to speak. They they can't count on that, right? This is this is it. So in my view, it's even more important to get it right. It's not do this or nothing. It's do the right thing when it comes to health care because you might only get one shot. Because if you lose a majority in the House or the Senate in the midterms, that's it. And then it's just one long one long hard slog until uh, the presidential election. And Republicans are going to have to live with whatever they do here. I've heard people make the case. I'm not sure. I I wouldn't say I agree with it, but I think that you can at least make a case that nothing is better than bad. Uh, The best thing, of course, would be a good bill, but no bill from the Republicans in the Senate and well, Republicans in the Congress. uh, No bill from them would be better than the wrong bill uh, because of the impact on the midterms. Uh, You know, it's who knows. Right. There's a lot of factors that will change along the way. But I I like the Paulian point of view here from Senator Rand Paul. Here's what he says.
2: I think we can offer something better than Obamacare. What I've been offering is there's 27 million people that were left behind by Obamacare who have no insurance currently. What I've been offering is a plan that would offer insurance to all of them at a cheaper price. Let every individual in this country, plumbers, pest control, carpenters, weld them, let them join together in associations so they can get group insurance at a cheaper price. But you have to believe in freedom. You have to believe that leaving people alone, right. that the marketplace will bring the prices down.
4: There you go. You see, philosophically, I I completely agree with Senator Rand Paul. Why isn't that the case? Uh, You know, you have these national unions. Why can't people uh, band together in a certain sector and say, "Okay, well, we're all going to get a certain level of insurance? When, When I worked at the NYPD, the cops had great insurance and they paid almost nothing for it. And it was for their whole families, too uh this is why in new york we don't not don't just have new york state tax but new york city tax which is considerable by the way to live here um although i do like it here uh the cops had that i was a civilian contractor at the NYPD uh working on counterterrorism and i did not qualify for that insurance so even though i was an NYPD employee i was under some uh, like civilian policy that was very second because we weren't part of the union there's no collective bargaining there's none of that and my insurance stunk i mean it stunk and i'm like well you know there's a lot of local civilian municipal employees across the country if i could have gotten in on that action if if i could have banded together with you know the the, uh, civilian law enforcement um personnel from across the country i'm sure i could have gotten a great plan but my plan was terrible because there weren't that many of us. And the political realities are, you know, you take care of your cops. The people that are like helping the cops that are doing either admin roles or expert specialist types, uh, they, they you know, they're on their own. So so I felt this myself. I, I have personal, uh, you know, personal memories of what this is like. And, and I was somebody who who transitioned from having federal insurance, which was great, by the way. I was really spoiled with that. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. The doctor's like so happy to see me. It's like everything is covered from having federal insurance to having uh, insurance that was from the NYPD, right? And, you know, it was not good. So you, you you learn these things when you deal with them and you see how collective bargaining or rather uh, joining together people from your sector could be really helpful. Uh, it could be really helpful. So- back to uh back to what's going on here with the bill okay I didn't even tell you what some of the specifics are and, and I should do that um but you know what let me uh, let me hit a break here When it come back I'll tell you what's in the Republican health care bill We'll be joined by our friend Lonnie Chen from the Hoover Institute to go into some of the why he thinks this is a good idea I'm a little more skeptical about it all and we've also got David Harsanyi joining us just to talk about some uh Some fun things that are out there in the world. Some interesting things out there in the world. Uh, And BuckSexton.com slash uh, shop. I'm sorry. No, I keep getting this wrong. BuckSexton.com slash store. BuckSexton.com slash store is where you can buy our new gear. We've just designed it. It is up the T-shirts look really cool, if I may say so. There's a Freedom Hut T-shirt that's amazing. People be like, where's the Freedom Hut? I want to go hang out. And you can be like, well, listen to the Buck Sexton show, and then you'll know. Uh, and the hats are amazing. Although, I, I'm, I tend not to wear too many hats because my head is huge. And everyone says, one size fits all, well, it should say one size fits all except Buck's giant dome, his enormous cranium with his poofy hair. It is impossible to fit a hat on this thing. I mean, I really just need to, like, roll up a trash bag or something if if it's raining outside because I can't wear a hat. Uh, it's a shame. These are the problems I deal with. When I was a baby, my mom says that—this is true, by the way—that they had to measure my head uh, with a measuring tape because it was the biggest head you could possibly have as a baby and still be considered normal. They were worried that maybe there was a problem, that, like my head was a- abnormal. I had the biggest head you could possibly have, and my little neck muscles— such as they were. My unde- undeveloped infant sternocleidomastoids, that's right, anatomy class, I remember stuff, uh, had a hard time holding up the giant cranium, and so I would sort of like sit up and then fall down, and my giant head would make a little baby buck fall down. Anyway, I can't wear hats really is what I'm trying to tell you, but you can, and the hats on bucksaxton.com are awesome, so you should check those out, and the T-shirts are amazing, and if you uh, if you tweet them at us, at Buck Sexton, we can you know, share them. Uh, show your team, Buck love everybody. bucksexton.com/store dot com slash store s t o r e. We'll be right back. All right, everybody. It is Harsanyi time. What's up, Mr. David Harsanyi? He is the senior editor at The Federalist and a nationally syndicated columnist. That's pretty cool. TheFederalist.com is where you should check out his writing. He's going to uh, just get into all, all the things with us right now. Mr. Harsanyi, great to have
1: you back. Always good to be here.
4: So, okay, Russia... There's a lot more to talk about this week. People are up on the details. I've been talking about them on the show. First off, I note that you uh, wrote on the Federalist that Trump Jr.'s meeting may not rise to treason, but it's still shady as hell. Why shady? Tell me why shady. I mean, we can agree or at least I I mean, it's clearly not treason to me. I think that's crazy. But uh, why is it shady?
1: Well listen, I think that if we plugged in the name of some Hillary Clinton person or Obama person and we plugged in the name of an Iranian instead of a Russian, we would think it was shady. I I think uh, more than shady, I think it's kind of stupid, right? For such high-level people to meet with a lawyer that the the in, you know, the person who's setting up the me- meeting clearly states is bringing you something from Putin, who, you know, whatever you think about, you know, how we should deal with Russia is not a good guy, and I wouldn't even, you know, and you shouldn't trust what he's telling you, things of that nature. It's just a, a shady way to do business, at least from my perspective. I mean, and it also has to do with Russia, with me. I think that they're a bad actor. I think they undermine the Ameri- American, in many different ways that I don't like, and so I find it shady. I don't find it treasonous. I don't think it's illegal, uh, but I do think. It's it's problematic.
4: See, you know, everyone has been saying, as they you know, the I should say, the people who defend this, because a lot of people are saying, "Oh my gosh, it's you know, it's treason and all this other stuff." But this mm-hmm. isn't the first time. I mean, Aaron Burnett was Aaron Burnett was asking on CNN months ago whether what Donald Trump did with the Russians what, isn't that treason. Uh, but let's let's just people have been saying so far that uh, because no information was exchanged, then, you know, essentially no harm, no foul, right? Because there was no damaging information, why are we even really talking about this? One, I do think, especially if you're going to start talking about, like, a criminal standard, that, that that does matter. I don't even know what the crime would be. But if nothing happens, to me, that's, you know, that that's something to take into account. Um, the, the, not, I mean, I know people say, what about attempted? Well, attempted things is obviously different. But uh, conspiracy as a statute needs to be very narrow and very specific and very clear However, what if the information that this uh, Veselnitskaya woman, I just like to say the name now, you know, it's kind of fun to say, but it's like 10 times real fast, Veselnitskaya. Anyway, what if the information she had, David, was that Hillary Clinton had just straight up accepted payoffs from the Russian government while she was Secretary of State? Would that be – I mean, wouldn't the American people – shouldn't they know that? Wouldn't we want to know that? Even if it meant that she lost the election because the Russians told us some nasty stuff about her. I don't see the problem the same way that other people do, and I'm not sure what I'm missing with that. Because to me, if the information was really damning and stuff that people should know, well, then they should know it. If well, it's true. Guess,
1: right. Well, first of all, I don't even – I'm not a lawyer, but I don't know that hearing something from someone, if I offer them nothing in return, is even illegal then. I mean, yeah. I, even if she gave them, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Not, I'm not allowed to talk to anyone? I mean, this seems like a First Amendment issue to me, just separate, you know, just the legal part of it. If the information was something like that, you should take that information and you should immediately call the FBI and tell them, right? I mean, I think that that's what a normal person would do. If you were, if if you were walking around and some Russian spy person gave you a, you know, a dossier that showed that Hillary Clinton uh, had taken payments to, to uh, you know. To do that plutonium deal, for instance, you would take it immediately and give it to the FBI because that's a criminal matter and it's given to you by another nation. Well, I, I think
4: might, if you're a political campaign, David, you might you might actually run with that publicly first. <laughs> just here's, what
1: I, here's what I would do. I would give it to the FBI and immediately leak it to someone. So, I mean, that's what pop people do in politics. But
4: couldn't right? we agree, though, that, that that the meeting under those – which I know is not what happened, right? But I'm just trying to look at this from all the angles. Under those circumstances, the meeting doesn't look, doesn't look so dumb. It doesn't look so shit. It looks dumb and shady because nothing came of it and now it's a problem.
1: It's just the way, like, I, yeah, if you have what you say you have, I love it and stuff like this. It's just kind of, like, weird and unprofessional. And, you know, uh, listen, the, the, the fact of the matter is I, I do think every campaign would have taken a meeting like this. I just don't think that David Axelrod would have taken the meeting. Do you know what I'm saying? I just think that this is the sort of uh, information that's traded on lower levels, and it's just a, a weird thing, especially when you consider this, that we've been talking about this stupid Russian collusion stuff, and maybe it will be proven one day. And – and then, uh, the, you know, they keep calling it fake news, even to the day, even to the an hour before, you know, they're releasing an email. So it just makes you look like you're hiding something. And I just think I just, you know, just generally, I think it's a bad idea.
4: I think one of the worst the worst uh, PR blunders in all this. Is, uh, and, and I know that some some very good people that I like went along with it. I don't know why was to say that this Well, I think Trump said it himself, actually, but that Donald Trump Jr. was being so transparent. It's like, guys. <laughs> When the New York Times is calling you for comment on a story saying we've got your emails and then you release your emails, that's not transparency. Hold on a second, guys. We're going to have more with our friend uh, David Harsanyi coming up here in, uh, in just a couple of minutes. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we can put your calls in the queue while we finish up with David. And uh, we've got a lot more coming for you. Stay with me. All right, so we're back with David Harsanyi from The Federalist. David, I was asking right before we had to go on a break about, I mean, is it really transparency to release this stuff?
1: Listen, I get that, that that's something people do. You know, when they get caught, they immediately release everything to make it look like they're being transparent. But that's transparent. You know, that's transparent BS.
4: Yeah, I, I, don't, I so I don't know why anyone was even— trying that and that just makes it harder right it makes it harder for someone like me who is certainly uh sympathetic and ideologically aligned with much but not all of the trump administration's yeah. republican agenda
1: um, Why didn't, he, he should have come out and said listen i'm new at this you know i didn't know how these things work someone came to me with this information you know I, I i wish i he sort of said this i wish i had done it differently i wish i hadn't taken that meeting or i wish i had said listen go to the fbi or whatever it is um, it would have been, I think, better than than how they handled it.
4: We're speaking to David Harsanyi, everybody, senior editor at The Federalist, nationally syndicated columnist. Thefederalist.com is where you will uh, check out all of his latest. Um, by the way, David, we talked a bit about whataboutism yesterday on the show you make the case that whataboutism is not a should, you know, this is like when people talk about oh, that's a slippery slope argument well, some some slopes are slippery I like to say, just because that's that's sometimes considered a fallacy, doesn't mean it's always a fallacy, and sometimes whataboutism is actually quite justified
1: well, yeah, I mean if I take whataboutism as its you know through its definition sort of where it means i'm trying to excuse something wrong that someone's done by pointing out something else someone's done that's a logical fallacy but that's not how it's used what they do is they say listen what donald trump is doing is completely unprecedented and you're like well actually this happened in the pet no what about it? <laughs> i'm like you know they don't let you put things into historic context they don't let you point out for instance, that the people right now who are involved in these debates were doing the same exact things. I think those matter because it speaks to their bad faith arguments. It speaks to their politics and what they're trying to accomplish. And also, you know, this idea that I can't talk about issues today in a historical context is crazy. We, we, all our conversation in politics, it's a continuum. We, we always connect it to the past. And all of a sudden, you're not allowed to do that. I think that it's a dishonest, misleading way to argue quite often. Sometimes, though, I agree. I mean, you know, people use whataboutism to excuse Trump. I think that's wrong. But if you're using – you're bringing up the past to make a broader point about something, I think it's completely legitimate.
4: And uh, what, do you, what do you think the administration should do to respond to all this? Now, look, the, the, count, the special counsel is going on no matter what. Congressional investigations are going to continue. No end to any of that in sight. Uh, should there just be a, much more of a focus on policy items and, and agenda, or, uh, you know, what, what
1: would be your advice? <laughs> it's a crazy mess. I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I wish, you know, listen, I wish he was more involved in trying, you know, to use his sort of populist powers to push through an Obamacare repeal bill. But, but frankly, I just don't feel like he knows what's going on or is even part of that process in any real way. So I, I don't know. I mean, he seems to do best when he's abroad, frankly. So maybe he needs to go abroad more. I don't know. Um, but yeah,
4: how do you think the France, the France meetings have been going?
1: I don't know. They seem OK to me. Uh, he actually seems to do pretty he he actually seems to do better with foreign policy than I expected him to do. I'm not saying I think he's been perfect, but I think he's been a lot better than I expected. And on 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 the sort of issues that won him in the election, you know, won him the election, the economic issues, I think he's not been as good at. So uh, that's sort of been surprising. But I mean, this Russia thing will not go away because the mainstream media will make it 90 percent of its coverage every day. And there's just no way to escape that debate.
4: Do, do you think CNN's kind of lost its mind? I mean, it's always been liberal, but it, it, I've been hearing from friends of mine over there, honestly. I've actually been talking to people recently, and they're like, it's just a straight-up anti-Trump pack now, man. I mean, it's not, there's no room for anything else.
1: I, I, I think they painted themselves into that corner. I'm not sure how they escape it right now, you know, and I think there are some good people that I like over there. Yeah, me too. And, uh, but there are some people there who are complete, you know, frauds. It's essentially they're just advocates and, and, and political. And here's a perfect example of what aboutism. I can't take people who let eight years slide by and never had a problem with the administration all of a sudden take them seriously when they're, when they're pretending to defend the Constitution today. So I don't think they're making a good faith argument. I don't think it's professionalism. I think that they're just anti-Trump, which is a fine position as long as you're anti-Obama also when his turn comes, but you won't be.
4: David Harsanyi, everybody. Check out his latest at thefederalist.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at David Harsanyi. Mr. Harsanyi, always appreciate you making the time.
1: Love being on. Thank you.
4: All right, team. We've got some lines lit here as well. I want to bring your voices into the program, into the Freedom Hut, as always. And in Virginia, listening on the iHeart app. What's up, Ann?
0: Good evening, Mr. Sexton.
7: Hello. We're going to break away from politics for a second, okay? Yes, ma'am. We're going to
0: talk about infant head circumferences.
4: O- be- o- okey-doke.
0: So the nurse brings in my index card
7: with the weight and, you know, the height, and but there's no entry for the circumference. I said, this is blank. Ah, uh, yeah, the nurse must have made a mistake because it's off the chart. So, <laughs> and that son of mine, that a full scholarship
0: to Purdue, a full scholarship to a law school. There you
4: go. All right. You're telling me big, big heads are good.
0: <laughs> you got it.
4: All right. <laughs> thanks, it. thanks for calling in and always, always good to hear from you. Uh, Richard in West Virginia, WWVA. Hey, Richard. How are you going back at
0: the Freedom Hut t-shirt?
4: You're going to get a Freedom Hut t-shirt?
0: I said, I, I heard you talk about Freedom Hut uh, t-shirt. I did not know how you, want to, how you want to go about getting one. Oh, it's easy, but sir. You just go
4: up. to com slash store, and they're all right there.
0: Oh, okay, because uh, I can walk around Wheeling, West Virginia with a uh, Buck Sexton Freedom Hut t-shirt.
4: You absolutely you should do that, sir. If you want to even take a selfie and tweet it at me, we'll uh, we'll we'll share it here so everyone can see other members of Team Buck across the country. So please do.
0: I would uh, if I could. Uh, the only thing is, I don't have a computer, so I'd have a tough time getting it. I'm so I bet like I could find somebody that could get me one. You know what I wanted to ask about? Well, we'll you okay. know, just so you
4: know, Richard, at some point we'll do an on-air giveaway. Uh, for we'll give away a handful of shirts. So if you call back in during the giveaway, we'll probably just send one to you. But we all we we do that'll only be a few, and there'll be a contest. But we would like people to go to the site and check them out. It's a great way to support the show, and and it's really cool gear. We actually worked on the designs, and I think people really like it. But go ahead, Richard.
0: Yeah, I could because I am somebody who, if I got one, I wouldn't just throw it in the closet. I would wear it. What I wanted to ask about was this when it comes to Donald Trump. There's just a local host that I'm telling just railing on him like you wouldn't believe. He said that he basically, he didn't really want to win. He was just there trying to make a reality show out of this whole about him running. He really didn't want to win. He didn't expect to win. It's over his head. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's dangerous to this country. He's incompetent they saying things just like that. I just wonder what you think about those kind of comments like that. Because he's just going on. There's people texting and telling him, get off of it, you know. It's just ridiculous what you're doing. He really believes that Donald Trump is dangerous this country, and he is incompetent, and he just over his head. That yeah, he well, it sounds, like,
4: it sounds like he works for MSNBC. I mean, this is not unusual rhetoric uh, in a lot of – different parts of the country and, and a lot of different media media outlets. So, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that that's really irresponsible and, and unhelpful rhetoric. I think that it doesn't deal with uh, the country as it is and the, and the presidency as it is, but rather as people on the left choose to see it for their own reasons. And uh, And it's distressing, Richard. But thank you for calling in, and I uh, hope you can find a way to get yourself a T-shirt. Those of you listening, com slash store. Uh, They're already up. I'm gonna gonna be rocking one myself here in uh, in just a few days. So, uh, because I literally just went up today, they're brand new. The designs are new. Everything is new. So go check them out. Uh, I told you I'd tell you more about what's different about this insurer, uh, this uh, healthcare plan, real quick before we're going to be joined by Lonnie Chen here in a a moment from the Hoover Institute to get into a little more of what matters with healthcare. It uh, allows insurers they can sell plans that aren't necessarily. In compliance, this is the Senate Republican bill, the updated version, not necessarily in compliance with Obamacare. Forty-five billion dollars for uh, opioid addiction treatment, Uh, so that's in there. A couple of taxes on uh, higher-income people are restored in this one, and also greater use of HSAs, health savings accounts. In fact, this Senate Republican bill would allow you to use your health savings account, HSA, to pay the premiums for your health insurance. So, by the way, I think HSAs uh, should be an even more widespread use. I think they're a very good idea, and and I I tend to be very supportive of them as a policy measure. Uh, So uh, we're going to talk more about that. And then, remember, coming up here in the third hour— uh i have to tell you about this afghan refugee uh, situation in uh in austria you're going to want to hear about that third hour we'll be right back All right, let's talk about what's going on in the world of health care and the Republican effort to do something about the Obamacare bill that is still uh, dragging down health care across the country and increasing the costs. We've got Lonnie Chen on the line now. He's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, a lecturer at Stanford University, and was an advisor to Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign. Lonnie, great to have you back.
7: Hey, good to be with you again.
4: All right. What's this new Republican health care bill in the Senate, and what's going on with it? What do we need to know?
7: Well, a a lot of what we see in this bill is what has been in the Senate bill for the last several weeks. I do think it makes some really important changes, uh, still has some really good entitlement reform there to something called the Medicaid program, which is a program that helps to cover low-income Americans. but. We're scheduled to spend more on over the next ten years than in fact our economy will be. So we've got to make some changes there. The second thing it does is it gives states greater flexibility to have great health care arrangements for people in their state. So I think that's good. And the last thing is it really does give support to people to help them afford health insurance and hopefully it'll bring down the cost of health insurance over time. So I think it does some good things. Not a perfect bill, still not a perfect bill. But really, the choice we have now, Buck, is we've got Obamacare, as you said, with all of its problems continuing uh, forward versus this alternative, which I do think uh, is an improvement.
4: Now, the criticism that I've seen already leveled against this is that it offers uh, stripped down, low cost, bare bones plans or, or will allow, I should say, the offering of such plans whether that's fair to describe them that way or not uh what's what is the what's going on with them i mean so now it means that the obamacare minimum standards for plans would be gone and would states be making the decisions or would just insurance companies be making the decisions
7: yeah well the the idea is that we want to be able to offer people more choice of plans you know one of the things that obamacare did was to put in place federal mandates uh, that basically dictate what has to be covered and what can't be covered uh, under plans. And the idea was to return more of that flexibility to the states so that there could be a larger selection of plans. And why do you want a larger selection of plans? Well, quite, quite frankly, you might want to buy a plan that has certain kinds of benefits, and you might not want to buy benefits that you're not going to use. So that's the basic idea behind the regulatory reform contained in the Republican bill uh, and I think that's a good thing. I think giving people a choice of what they uh, of plans of different options is a good thing.
4: So this would be uh, different from Obamacare in the sense that you'd have greater options. This would also bring down costs, I assume. I mean, part of the one of the big problems here is that as as I understand it, Lonnie, and, and correct me if this is off, What Obamacare does is it forces people to pay for things that they would not choose to pay for with their health care plan so that other people can get that. And so it's redistributive at its core. This might be less redistributive. Is that fair to say?
7: Yeah. So the hope is that, you know, because people can buy plans that only include benefits that they're going to use, they're going to be paying less. Part of the reason why premiums have continued to go up under Obamacare is because there is a mandated set of benefits, and those benefits – are there whether you use them or not. And the idea is, hey, let's give this uh, health care system a little bit more choice and optionality so you can pick a plan that includes benefits you're going to use. And I think the Republican bill tries to get at that, and that will have a good effect on premiums. In fact, you know, one thing, Buck, is the, the Congressional Budget Office, which is this uh, you know, nonpartisan office that's been talked about a lot recently that estimated uh, the effects of the bill. One of the things they actually found is that if you compare premiums today Against premiums in ten years under the Republican proposal,, uh, premiums in ten years are actually going to be lower uh, comparing the same plans by about twenty percent. So that's a good thing, and that's one of the advantages of the approach the Republicans are taking.
4: Why did they uh, back off on some of the tax uh, some of the tax cuts that had been in the previous version of this? Was it just a function of trying to get it past the CBO, or w- was there a a more important political uh, imperative at play?
7: No, I I think part of the challenge here is is and and first of all, I think that the tax relief that the Republicans were originally seeking is really important. I I think that you know it gets mischaracterized by a lot of our our progressive friends, but the reality is that those tax cuts are important to help grow the economy. But I I think, frankly, what this came down to was an issue uh, of optics. That it was very very difficult for Republicans to continue to proceed uh, with large tax reductions for. Uh, people who have done well in the economy, or for uh, for, for capital gains, uh, as, and, and it was hard for them to continue to pursue those tax cuts in light of what are perceived as reductions to the Medicaid program, as I mentioned earlier. So this this really, I think, became a challenge for them from a from a procedural and political perspective, and that's why you have the outcome you do.
4: We're speaking to Lonnie Chan, He's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a lecturer at Stanford University. Lonnie, uh, does this? Does this get passed, you think, in the Senate? I'm seeing some early reports that they may not even have the votes for this version.
7: Well, yeah, I, you know, I think this is going to be a moving target over the next week or so. One thing I do know is that you never underestimate Mitch McConnell. He is a guy who is incredibly skillful at understanding uh, what his uh, his members need, what the senators need and what they're looking for and how to get the deal done. So I, I think that... Uh, you know i'm still relatively optimistic that something will come about next week now there's a lot of reporting uh, that leads me to question my optimism but i think fundamentally republicans realize that we have a relatively binary choice if we're interested in doing away with Obamacare. We can either continue with Obamacare or we can take a look at this legislation uh, and and try and move the ball in the other direction. And I think eventually that, that choice will become clear to people.
4: But we are not repealing Obamacare with this, right? This is changing the Obamacare law and some, some core parts of it, but the overall architecture of Obamacare would still be in place if this version of the Senate bill went through, correct?
7: Uh, You know, I actually think that we're repealing some important things in this bill. We're repealing the requirement that someone has to have health insurance. We're repealing the requirement that employers need to offer health insurance. We're repealing a lot of the taxes. We're actually creating an opportunity for states to get rid of a lot of the regulatory rules in Obamacare. So while it's not a full and complete repeal of Obamacare, by the way, that's not possible because Republicans don't have a large enough majority in the Senate to make that possible. I think that this is pretty substantial repeal. It's not full repeal, but it's up there.
4: And would this have effects if it passed that people h- – how would this make things better for the people listening? If the Senate bill, as it stands now, goes through pretty – let's assume either as-is or close to as-is, that would mean for folks listening what? Why should they care?
7: Well, I, I think it's the point you made earlier, which is that hopefully we can begin to get on a better trajectory in terms of cost, and that means lower premiums hopefully going forward, and, and a healthcare system that's more affordable. But more importantly than that, Buck, a healthcare system where there's some choice. You know, one of the challenges we have now, is: you look around at Obamacare, you look across all the states in the country. How many states now have all these counties where there really is no choice of insurer or no insurer who wants to offer coverage? That is not a system that is sustainable for the long run. So we need to figure out a way to get back to a system where there's some choice and hopefully drive down costs. And I think this bill will move us in that direction.
4: Lonnie Chen of the Hoover Institution, everybody. Lonnie, great to have you. Uh, Appreciate your time.
7: Thank you, Buck. Thank you, Buck.
4: Uh, team, we're going to be going into a, a quick break here. We've got a lot more show. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. And also don't forget, com slash store for some amazing T-shirts and baseball hats, trucker style. You can check them out there. Team Buck hats. Uh, we've got Freedom Hut T-shirts. Amazing stuff. com slash shop. We'll be right back.
3: He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825.
4: is a social terrorist it's a phrase that comes up in a piece in the national interests written by dr. Cheryl uh, Bernard that is one of the most compelling uh, and uh, troubling upsetting uh, but insightful reads on the issue of immigration and assimilation and ideology in Europe Uh, Of of anything that I've read, this is one of the most important pieces. I cannot recommend it to you more highly, and yet you will not hear about it from most of the media. This will not be leading nightly news broadcasts. There will not be segments on this. There is an Afghan rape craze going on in Austria right now, and the author of this piece raises the uh, issue of, of Austria specifically, because of her familiarity with the country. Uh, She has uh, longstanding uh, ties and and background in Austria, but she said that there are similar case studies that you could do in other European countries as well that have brought in large numbers of Muslim refugees in recent years, but specifically in the case of Austria, it is Afghans that she is focusing in on. Who Right now in Austria, a country of 8 million people, so a country that is the size in its entirety in terms of population of New York City, Afghan refugees are responsible for 50%, percent five zero 0 percent of sexual assaults and rapes. And this is something that the authorities in Austria have been trying to cover up, and the press has been playing games, and you just, you have to read the details in this piece. Uh, I want to read some excerpts of it to you because it does raise this issue of what is a social terrorist, and also how does the clash of civilizations manifest itself in day-to-day life for people in Europe now because of the clash between Islam and the West? And is this a harbinger of things to come in this country? It's a question that we have to ask, and it's one we have to take very seriously despite all of the excuse-making and accusations of Islamophobia and all of this going on. On the in the Democratic Party and on the American left in general in this country, uh, this is a very serious issue. Let me read to you from this piece in the National Interest by Dr. Bernard, who I, I can tell you right now is a real academic. I know some of her background well and uh, is not somebody that can be uh, called an Islamophobe, is not somebody who is in any way just sort of pulling together some thoughts on the region from news articles. She knows Austria well, and she knows Islam very well. Uh, So here's what she writes in this piece. Uh, It quickly became obvious that something was very, very wrong with these young Afghan men. They were committing sex crimes to a much greater extent than other refugees, even those from countries that were equally or more backward, just as Islamic and conservative, and arguably just as misogynist. This is not an article that has been fun for me to write. I have worked on issues related to refugees for much of my professional life, from the Pakistani camps during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan to Yemen, Sudan, Thailand, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Lebanon, Bosnia, Nicaragua, and Iraq, and have deep sympathy for their plight. But nowhere had I encountered a phenomenon like this one, I had seen refugees trapped in circumstances that made them vulnerable to rape by camp guards or soldiers. But for refugees to become perpetrators of this crime in the place that had given them asylum, that was something new. Yeah. We're talking about people who are, by their own admission, these refugees who commit crimes. Now, of course, it's a small percentage of overall refugees, goes without saying. But it's not a small percentage of overall sexual assaults, and it is making people in Austria fearful to be in public spaces. This is now creating a, a widespread concern. This is similar to some of the crime wave concerns in America back in the 70s and in the 80s when, you know, you didn't go into public parks at night. Well, the Austrians, who live in a very orderly and safe uh, and law-abiding society, they don't want to give up their freedom to walk around And as I give you more details, you'll realize how terrifying this whole set of circumstances really is because this is not uh, Austrian refugees who get confused when they're in a social situation and drink too much and go too far. This is a seemingly systematic effort by a number of refugees to hunt, assault and rape not just young women, elderly women, children. It is barbarism on display here, and in Austria, because this is a new and grotesque and shocking phenomenon to them, they are taking note. In fact, from this piece, The National Interest, uh, the Austrian city of uh, Tullin declared a full stop to any further refugee admissions. Uh, The mayor made clear that the decision was aimed at Afghans, but for legal and administrative reasons, it could only be promulgated in a global way. That had not been the city's intention. To the contrary, it had just completed the construction of an expensive, brand-new facility for incoming asylum seekers, which would now, the mayor declared, be given over to another purpose. His exact words. We've had it. The tipping point... After a series of disturbing incidents, all emanating from Afghans, was the brutal gang rape of a 15-year-old girl snatched from the street on her way home, dragged away and abused serially by Afghan refugees. Continuing on from this piece, quote, A while before in Vienna, a young female Turkish exchange student had been pursued into a public restroom by three Afghan refugees. They jammed the door shut and proceeded to savagely attack her, grabbing her by the neck. They struck her head repeatedly against a porcelain toilet uh, to knock her out. When that failed to break her desperate resistance, they took turns holding her down and raping her. The young woman required a hospital stay, after which, too traumatized to resume her studies, she fled home to Turkey, where she continues to be depressed and miserable. Unable to process what happened, and unable in a conservative society to talk about her experience to anybody except one best friend and confidant. I, I could go. I could go into even greater detail. In fact, uh, I, I will, because in this piece, uh, that is what Dr. Bernard. Just so we're all clear that this is not uh, Islamophobia. That this is not an exaggeration of the problem. That this is not. Uh, some form of anti-Muslim bigotry. She is singling out the Afghan refugee population among other Muslim refugees in Austria for reasons that I will go into, or at least for uh, theories behind why this is. It is Afghans in Syria who are committing a disproportionate level of these crimes, of these sex crimes, and also the barbarity of them is appalling. Um, And so... I want to give you examples, and I just warn you that as I read this, this is as atrocious as anything you'll hear anywhere else. I mean, this is this is really frightening stuff, but if we're going to have discussions about immigration and refugee policy, and maybe we should just have open arms for refugees from the Middle East, uh, extreme vetting sounds like a really good idea, everybody, after you read this piece. Again, written by a true academic with lots of experience in Austria and a ton of experience dealing with the Islamic community and trying to be constructive and help the Muslim community. So here is what she writes. Uh, This from the Osterreich, the daily newspaper distributed for free on public transit and thus read basically by almost everyone. Front page Afghan 18 attacks young woman at Danube festival. Once again, there has been an attempted rape by an Afghan. A 21 year old Slovak tourist was mobbed and groped by a group of men. She managed to get away, but was pursued by one of them, an Afghan asylum seeker who caught her and dragged her into the bushes. Nearby, plainclothes policemen noticed the struggle and intervened to prevent the rape at the last moment. Page 10. Quote, a 25-year-old Afghan attempted to rape a young woman who was sitting in the sun in the park. Four courageous passers-by dragged the man off the victim and held him until the police arrived. Page 12. Two Afghans have been sentenced for attempting to rape a woman on a train in Graz. The men who live in an asylum seeker's residence first insulted the young woman with obscene verbal remarks before attacking her. When she screamed for help, passengers on other parts of the train rushed to her aid. The author here, uh, Dr. Bernard, asks, What is going on here, and why, why the Afghans? According to Austrian police statistics, Syrian refugees cause fewer Then 10% of sexual assault cases, Afghans, whose numbers are comparable, are responsible for a stunning half. Another very important question, beyond just why is it Afghans, why so many sexual assaults, brutal, vile rapes, why? The brazenness of them. You read through these stories in Austria, and you think to yourself, wait a minute, this was in broad daylight? This was in front of other Austrians? This was on a crowded train. You have Afghan refugees, asylum seekers, people who are coming to Europe, coming to Austria, on their knees, begging, saying they'll be executed if they go back to Afghanistan. Please give me a new life. And then some of those same individuals are hunting women, the elderly, young children and raping them in broad daylight in an act of mob sexual violence, and this is happening repeatedly again and again. Why is this happening? There are some very important uh, ideas, the very important theories as to the cause of this, and I want to get into them with you, but I'm going to have to come back on the other side of the break. Why is this? Uh, the wave of Afghan refugees into Austria responsible for not just, of course, the possibilities of radicalization and the difficulties of assimilation into this community. Why are these Afghan refugees responsible for what could be called social terrorism or sexual terrorism? I'll give you some answers on the other side of the break. Stay with me. Why are Afghan migrants in Austria committing social terrorism, sexual terrorism, in the numbers that we've seen in the last uh, 12 to 18 months? And the answer uh, is not clear, but there are at least some uh, some efforts to try and understand what's going on here. First of all, um, there are some who claim that alcohol, and again, this is... With Afghan refugees, specifically among all Muslim refugees in Austria, there are uh, a number of really, it's a continuing series of brazen, often broad daylight, incredibly violent, barbaric rapes uh, going on of uh, the elderly, of children, uh, and young women, and gang rapes in numerous cases. And this has really rocked Austrians because they are not used to this kind of behavior uh it is shocking to them it's shocking to anyone anywhere around the world and people are asking the government there for answers and some governments are saying you know what it's time that we just stop all refugees from coming into the country this is this is happening right now everyone i I know our media doesn't want to talk to you about it but this is ongoing right now um and this is in a very orderly european country a european ally of ours only 8 million people. So when you hear and read about these stories, uh, it really stays with you. This is not a vast population of people. It's not a vast population of refugees. Okay, so what are the uh, explanations as to why Afghan refugees are involved in these behaviors? Some say that uh, it's because of alcohol, because they haven't been exposed to alcohol in the past, and so now if they get... Drunk, And in fact, there have been cases of Afghans who think that that's an excuse for whatever behavior they engage in. So there have been Afghans who have said that they blacked out after a beer. And then when they tried to rape a young woman, it was because they didn't and they didn't know. So they can't be held accountable. uh, Not understanding, of course, that in their lying, they've exposed that they're not blacking out after a beer. Um, And even if they did, they're still responsible for their actions. But they just... Uh, view this as an excuse that's an off that's one explanation that's discussed in the piece but in many instances of the most severe sexual violence from these afghan refugees there's no alcohol involved so it can't be that it's just alcohol uh, and that wouldn't make sense for a variety of reasons another excuse is that these men are so sexually repressed that they will um, act out they will act out and this is just a function of coming from a very Uh, repressive society, Islamic society, but why then uh, Syria is perhaps not as as repressive as Afghanistan, but in some Syrian villages, women are wearing a very extensive hijab. Uh, They're wearing not necessarily a a burqa, but close to it, um, and they'll wear a face veil and niqab. So why are Afghans specifically doing it? Um, And the scantily clad women excuse, which is of course horrifying. This is a version of oh, uh, Austrian women's skirts are too short. That's the problem with these men, which is not the case at all um, because, well, for one, that's never a defense, right? But also, on top of that issue, they're not just attacking young women. They're attacking uh, adolescents. They're sexually assaulting elderly women. They're attacking women pushing strollers. I mean, they're just sexually assaulting the vulnerable. It, it, there's not even necessarily a uh, a sexual attraction-based predation going on here. It's just they want to sexually assault someone in Austrian society. And uh, as is pointed out by Dr. Bernard here, the victims are often mothers with small children with them at the time. Here's one of the stories. In one recent case that raised a huge public outcry, a woman was out for a walk in a park... ...on an elevation above the Danube. Uh, With her, she had her two children, a toddler plus her infant in a baby carriage. Out of the blue, an Afghan refugee leapt at her, threw her down, bit her, strangled her, and attempted to rape her. In the struggle, the baby carriage went careening towards the embankment, and the infant almost plunged into the river below. With her second child looking on aghast, the woman valiantly fought off her assailant, ripping the hood off his jacket... Which later made it possible for an Austrian police dog to track him down. So that's one incident that dispenses with the oh, it's it's these it's it's beautiful twenty something year old or you know young women in Europe and these sexually repressed Afghan men just can't can't process this, can't handle it, and they and they act out in these terrible ways. No, they're attacking women with children. They're attacking old old women, the elderly, and they're attacking children too. Uh, here's another incident, um, quote, two young women were on a midday stroll in the pedestrian zone of a small Austrian town, pushing their babies in, uh, in strollers before them when they were abruptly attacked by several Afghan refugees who lunged at them and ripped off their clothing, but were apprehended before they could do further damage. It's clear that such events antagonize the general public. It's also clear that we can dismiss. They were drunk and didn't know what they were doing theory. Uh, as well as the, they thought the women for, uh, they thought the women were asking for it. So th- this is very important that we right away uh, the theories that I think are offered up by those who try to I- explain this. The most common theories are some version of they're exposed to this new culture and they they can't they can't deal with it. You know, alcohol and and all this freedom, or they uh, are so repressed and, and really desexualized in a way in Afghan society, that when they have exposure to women just walking around in, in, in jeans and, and a sweater in Europe, they, uh, they're they overcome by some kind of a sexual mania and they attack them. Th- that's not the case, uh, or at least that's not what is prevalent here. That's not what's really happening. In, in a sense, what we're seeing here, and uh, this is Dr. Bernard's thesis in this piece, is A a a manifestation of an even more widespread problem within the Islamic world, and that these sexual assaults or this sexual terrorism—she calls it—I call it sexual terrorism. She calls it social terrorism. In the piece, Um, this uh, social terrorism that's going on in Austria is a function of a much larger ideological uh, opposition. It's a function of a much broader problem that is manifesting itself in the minds of these Afghans in this specifically criminal, violent, sexual way. Um, But I've gone long here. I want to give you the thesis of this. Why are Afghan refugees attacking people in Austria? We'll get into that right after the break.
3: He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back.
4: All right, team, so I've been talking to you about this wave, this surge of brutal, vicious, barbaric attacks in Austria. And we should know, it's not just Austria, and you can read about this, uh, although European media is always bending over backwards not to tell you uh, truth of these stories, uh, or the full extent of what's happened, or who the perpetrators are behind it, but uh, there have been these these broad daylight, brutal assaults, uh, predominantly against women, but women of, of all ages, including uh, children and the elderly, uh, these uh, gang rapes by Afghan refugees, this is in the country that has taken, taken them in, is very generous with Newcomers with welfare benefits, with the uh, offerings uh, of the state. And we'll get into that, by the way, in a second. Um, but I've already dispensed with, and I note this is a piece, this analysis is largely uh, in this piece from the National Interest, written by uh, Dr. Cheryl Bernard, who is an expert in the area, specifically in Austria, uh, has spent a lot of time in Austria and is also. Uh, an expert in refugees and dealing with the Muslim world. So she her her um, credentials, if you go and, and check them out, I mean, are impeccable. Uh, she's somebody who really knows uh, what she is talking about here. Uh, she's been at the Rand Corporation. Uh, she's written extensively on this. And I just want to give you that background because usually when you bring this issue up, you will be shouted down as some alt-right bigoted racist. Well, here you have a woman who has deep expertise and firsthand knowledge and knows the cultures involved has been there has seen it has done the research and she's telling you this is a big problem okay this is not some this is not being exaggerated this is not uh you know some alt right website that's making a lot out of nothing because they don't like immigrants this is real and she's trying to raise the alarm here but you so you've got these afghan refugees who are uh, attacking women, and there are other problems. By the way, they're bringing socially in, into the equation as well, and um, that's you know just petty crime and uh, an unwillingness to learn the culture and to learn about the culture and learn the language. But and if, and of course, then once I'm sure at some point there'll be a suicide bomber in Austria, and we'll be told that it's because the Austrians. And this happened to me when I was on CNN. I, I was the lone voice on a panel of quote experts. Very senior former government officials from the military and and from within law enforcement. And there's, oh, well, let's be after the Nice attack in Paris. It's because Europeans don't assimilate their minorities, their Muslim minorities well enough. And I was, no, it's because people are jihadists and they're evil and they have been infected with this appalling, regressive, uh, barbaric Stone Age ideology uh, that is jihadism, that is radical Islam, And they view other people as in as unhuman, inhuman, less than human because of their belief system. It's not about social and political pressures. It's not because they were, you know, pick last for wiffle ball. It's because they are jihadis. And this is a threat. Yes, it is a threat to Western civilization and our existence. So back to Afghan refugees and what they've been doing, Uh, the alcohol defense. Does not come into play because in many cases there's no drunkenness involved. They're just these uh, packs of uh, Afghans. And I, okay, I know I'm speaking about. It. It's very scary. It's very. This is a, a very politically toxic issue to a majority of Afghan refugees. Are I, I, I have worked with Afghans. I know Afghans. Uh, a majority of them are very nice people and just going But there is this disproportionate subset of Afghan refugees that are really terrifying the Austrian public. So we should ask the question, why? Because it's particularly strange for people who have been given asylum, who have been saved from their own terrible crap circumstances uh, and from their own country. That's a disaster, which Afghan Afghanistan is a disaster. Well, let's just call it what it is. And it has been for a long time. Uh, it's, it's a particular kind of evil to, a, to turn against that country that's taken you in. It would be like knocking on a door in the middle of, in the middle of a terrible blizzard saying, please, please take me into your home. Uh, I'm going to freeze to death. And the family says, oh, of course, come warm yourself by our fire. You know, here's some hot tea. Here are some blankets. You're welcome to stay until the storm passes. And this passerby then uh, ties up and, and murders the whole family. You know, that's what that's a, a similar mentality to what we're talking about here with these Afghan refugees uh, who are engaging in these crimes. So, alcohol is not is not why this is happening, and quote scantily clad women is not. And again, that's never actually a uh, a defense or it's never an explanation. But trying to get to the motivations of the criminal mindset here, you have to look at it. But that's not even the case. Women who are very modestly dressed, who are with children. Uh, and elderly women who are clearly not you know, wearing tight skirts, uh, they're being attacked by these refugees. So why is it happening? And Dr. Bernard is willing to say it. It's because they hate the West. This problem of Afghan refugees engaging in gang rapes and uh, and premeditated group sexual assaults against uh, against non-Afghans is a version of the the we-hate-the-West mentality. It's because they are acting out against a culture and against people who they believe to be infidels, who they believe to be uh, evil and weak and soft. Here is how Dr. Bernard writes it. This brings us to a third more compelling and quite disturbing theory, the one that my Afghan friend, the court translator, puts forward. On the basis of his hundreds of interactions with these young men in his professional capacity over the past several years, he believes to have discovered that they are motivated by a deep and abiding contempt for Western civilization. To them, Europeans are the enemy, and and their women are legitimate spoils, as are all the other things one can take from them—housing, money, passports. Their laws don't matter. Their culture is uninteresting, and ultimately, their civilization is going to fall anyway to the horde of which one is the spearhead. No need to assimilate or work hard or try to build a decent life here for yourself. These Europeans are too soft to seriously punish you for a transgression, and their days are numbered. End quote. This is civilization jihad via refugees. That's what's going on here. Now, jihad is always perpetrated by a minority of the greater majority, right? Jihad is something that only a few, depending on which country and which circumstance we're talking about, will directly partake in. But there is a broader ideology that is at work here, and we are seeing it play out in Austria as we have in other parts of Europe as well. You know, there are music festivals that have had to be canceled in Sweden. Huge music festivals, you know, the equivalent of like a, a Woodstock, but with you know, electronic music for the most part. They've had to be canceled because of this tactic of young Muslim refugee men making a circle around a young female victim, sometimes a young adolescent female victim, and sexually assault her in a big group among a much larger group and then disperse and no one is able to identify who this specific rapist is so everyone gets away with it. Where have you heard of this before, by the way? In recent years, it's been at these music festivals in Sweden. It happened, of course, uh, in large uh, celebrations of New Year's Eve in Germany. And before, long before that, it happened in Tahrir Square in Cairo. Uh, the CBS reporter Lara Logan was surrounded and was sexually assaulted in using exactly this tactic. So this is not new, but it is. it has now come to Europe and it is happening And people want answers. Why is the government allowing people to come into Austria who hate not just Austria, but Western civilization, liberalism, rule of law, minority rights? Why are they importing a barbarism into their own society? That's what the Austrian people want to know. And it's not even just these sex crimes. Uh, Those are the ones that get the most attention now because they're just so... disgusting and disgraceful. Uh, But there's more that shows, again, this attitude of hatred of the West is what is motivating these Afghan refugees to act out in this criminal fashion. Here's what Dr. Bernard writes. Uh, The deliberate insidious abuse of the welfare system is consequential. Afghan refugees have a particular proclivity to play the system, to lie about their age, to lie about their circumstances, to pretend to be younger, to be handicapped, to belong to an ethnic minority, when even the tired eye of an Austrian judge can distinguish the delicate features of a Hazara from those of a Pashtun. By the way, she goes on to say that in this, uh, in this situation, or in these situations with Afghan refugees, old men with gray hair will stand before a judge and say they're 18. By the way, do you think this didn't happen at the border with illegals coming across from Central America saying, "Oh, I'm flee I'm fleeing from El Salvador or Honduras. I'm fleeing op- op- oppression and violence. Take me in." Walking up to border patrol. Unaccompanied minors, that was what you kept seeing being reported. How many how many 25-year-olds were showing up saying they were 17? I I just take a guess. Trust me. It's obvious. The system was being played, and once they got inside the country, then they're here, right? So Abuse of the system happens here. Abuse of the system happens in Austria. Uh, She even tells a story here about a family that had been in Hungary for decades but realized that the state benefits, the goodies in Sweden were better. So they pretended to be new refugees and went to Sweden and set themselves up there. And now they're not learning Swedish. They hate the country. They hate the people. But all their health care, their food and their housing is paid for by Swedish taxpayers. You don't hear these stories much. Not a lot of profiles about this on CNN these days, you will note. And they abuse our procedural norms and standards, too. Uh, Dr. Bernard says that we should use... Uh, medical tests to prove age because right now the abuse of uh, the abuse of of age in front of judges in Europe has reached preposterous proportions and when like I said, people with gray hair quote they'll stand right there balding gray at the temples and insist they're eighteen. that's according to an Austrian prosecutor uh also this will get you this look this is in Europe, my friends. the Democrats want us to be more like Europe. The Democrats think that. European culture and European way of life is something for us to to emulate the government's relationship to the individual should be emulated. Well, guess what? Uh, In Europe, if you're an Afghan refugee and you are part of a brutal rape and murder of an Austrian citizen and you don't want to go home and get deported, you know what? All you have to do is say, if I get sent home, they're going to kill me. And then under EU law, European Union law, you are not allowed to be extradited back. So you get to stay in Austria, in the Austrian prison system. And, you know, who knows how long your sentence is going to be, but they'd rather be in an Austrian prison and have everything provided for them than get sent back to Afghanistan. So it is just uh, crazy what's going on here. And... I remind you of Dr. Bernard's thesis here, which continues. These destructive, crazed young men are being intentionally infiltrated into Western Europe to wreak havoc, to take away the freedom and security of women, change patterns of behavior, deepen the rifts between liberals who continue to defend and find excuses, and a right wing that calls for harsh measures and violent responses, to inflict high costs and aggravation on courts and judicial systems, and generally make a mess of things. Now, she says she's not convinced of that theory, but that is a theory that would explain much of what is going on here. And she does say that there needs to be much, yes, that's right, more extreme vetting. There need to be uh, better procedures to determine the age of these entering refugees. And quite honestly, there really just needs to be a shutdown of refugees into some of these small European countries. And any crimes committed, there needs to be immediate deportation. Uh, This is one of the most powerful pieces on the issues of, uh, well, civilization, jihad, sexual terrorism, and refugees and assimilation that I've read in a very long time. I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, We'll have it posted on BuckSaxon.com. And uh, with that, team, we are going to go into a break here, and I'm going to close out the show on the other side. Stay with me. You know, team, in closing today, uh, I know that— The media is painting this this picture of of a country that is on the precipice, staring into the abyss, leading into disarray and all this other stuff. Right. Um, We are we are facing a Trumpian anarchy unless drastic measures are taken in the midterms. I mean, it's it's just completely. uh, Well, it's it's bizarre. It's dishonest. And what I think is so funny is that if you just took a moment and you and you step back for a second, you think to yourself, "Okay, how's the country doing now versus 12 months ago? Um, How's the country doing now during a comparable period of time under the uh, Obama administration? And by all the objective metrics we could look at right now, Trump is is doing a good job. I mean, the stock market's up what, uh, double digits for the year? I mean, the stock market is is hitting all-time highs. I think the Dow uh, yesterday, I don't really, I'm not much of an investor, so I don't pay too much attention to this stuff, but the Dow hit an all-time high, I think, yesterday. Uh, the stock market's doing really well. People say, oh, that just affects the those who have enough money to have investments. It's actually not true. It, it affects... Uh, hiring it affects because, you know, companies. How's the stock doing? It affects um, 401ks and retirements. I mean, you know, the stock market is an indi- it is a, a pretty important indicator of uh, of economic health. And look at unemployment. It's it's incredibly low right now. There's nothing that they can point to. That is is hurting Americans. In fact, the stuff that still bothers Americans that are being honest about what the government does and does not have control of things like health care, which is still Obamacare. Right. Everything that you've dealt with the past year when it comes to your health care is a function of Obamacare uh, and the policies of eight years of the Obama administration on health care and the, the decades of of poor government decision-making on health care before that, but you, know, you can't blame Trump for the health care situation, especially when the Congress seems to be falling flat on this. So uh, I think that one of the frustrations the media has is that they're trying to get such a, and the media, the Democrats, I use those terms somewhat uh, interchangeably, but they are trying to get people upset about, The Donald Trump Jr. meeting about Russia collusion about uh, about these issues that maybe theoretically could have some resonance, you know, maybe there's some way to uh, position this and, and force people into thinking that this really affects their day to day life. But whether or not Donald Trump Jr. wanted information from some Russian lawyer named Veselnitskaya affects you and me not a bit. And what's fascinating is, is at the end of the day, as as I've been saying, the worst outcome possible of of the Russia collusion. Let's say that if everything the Democrats believe about Russia collusion is true, if all of their insinuations, if all of the allegations are found, which I do not think this is the case, but I'm just just let's do this thought experiment. You know what the catastrophe is that will have occurred? Donald Trump will have beaten Hillary Clinton. And this is at the core of everything. This is at the heart of the issue. That's what we're really trying to find. We're trying to find out whether or not Trump beat Hillary through illicit means. That's what the Democrats are trying to do. And by the way, they're going to say that he did no matter what. But... Uh, it's it's hard for people who don't like Hillary Clinton to get too energized about that one way or the other and this is just that's just reality i i know that we're all supposed to be principled and and upset if anybody did anything shady although not criminal so uh, shadiness is political right collusion is political i'm not talking about criminal stuff but if the collusion was real Well, Hillary lost, so are people really going to care no matter what comes out of that investigation? I wonder. All right, please do uh, download the podcast of today's show and go to BuckSexton.com for T-shirts. That's right. Go to BuckSexton.com slash shop and uh, also download the podcast on iTunes. And we will be back tomorrow. Shields high.